Jesus and the woman of Samaria. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Well, brethren and sisters, you would have noticed that young Andrew only read down to verse 19, which I suppose told you that I intend to make two studies of the woman of Samaria, but we may even have three, because tonight we only hope to be able to proceed to about verse 6. And the reason for that, brethren and sisters, is that I feel that the background of this conversation between Jesus and this woman, the background is so dramatic and so fully charged that we need to comprehend that background in order to fully appreciate what the Lord was going to say to that woman. It's quite remarkable, is that background, which set the stage for that wonderful conversation between Jesus and that woman. Now the first thing we must know about the, this uh, meeting here between the woman of Samaria and the Lord Jesus Christ is that there is a distinct connection with that of Nicodemus. There's no doubt about that. And John has beautifully put that together. And although when you read the two stories separately, they would seem to be poles apart, there is a distinct connection in the way that John presents those, those stories. Now you look, for example, in John chapter 11. There are themes in John's Gospel. Here's one of them. In the 11th chapter of John, John sets forth one of the themes, one of the major themes of his Gospel message. And in verse 49 of the 11th chapter we read, and one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. And that's a marvellous theme in the Gospel of John. And here is Caiaphas, brethren and sisters, unwittingly making a, a remarkable prophecy that Jesus would die for that nation. Not in the way that he thought, but in a vastly different way. And John taking, taking his words and pointing out the spiritual significance of which he was ignorant, said that the purpose that Jesus would die, brethren and sisters, was that not he would die for that nation only, but he says that he should gather together in one all the children of God, the children of God that are scattered abroad. And that's why we've got the story of Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this immoral woman of Samaria in the fourth chapter. Because there's the children of God, brethren and sisters, and they're poles apart socially, religiously, poles apart. But the Lord Jesus Christ working on those two people, are gathering together in one. Now it goes something like this. In the prophecy of Isaiah, we won't turn it up because you know the verse so well, in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, which deals with the voice of John the Baptist, one of the things that Isaiah says in his fifth verse is this. The glory of Yahweh would be revealed and all flesh will see it together which, reading it on the surface, may seem to teach, brethren and sisters, that Christ will come, that God's glory will be revealed in the earth, and all people will, will understand it and see it. Well, that's true, it will happen like that. But that's not what that verse is saying. Let me paraphrase what that verse is saying. That Isaiah is pointing out that through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who of course would be preceded by the work of John the Baptist, 
that the glory of Yahweh would be revealed. And not every living person, but all kinds of flesh would see that glory and unite. The word yaked means to be as one. He would gather together in one all the children of God that are scattered abroad. Now how is it going to happen? They're going to see the glory of Yahweh. What happens when people see the glory of Yahweh, brothers and sisters? We may have people on different status in life, different elevations. There may be one person up here and another person down there. But when the glory of Yahweh is revealed, it does that straight away. And when we see the glory of Yahweh in the face of Jesus Christ, distinctions fly out the window because it levels everybody. Every mountain shall be made low, says Isaiah. Every valley shall be exalted. The crooked place is made straight and the rough place is smooth because the glory of Yahweh will straighten them all out and they'll see it and unite because they'll know that in the face of that glory, brothers and sisters, there is no distinctions. That's what Isaiah said. You might say, well, what's that got to do with John? Well, in the first chapter of John, we read this. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory of Yahweh was to be revealed, brethren and sisters, and he said, we saw it. That's in chapter 1. And so chapter 2 deals with a ruler of the Jews. He's way up there. And chapter 4 deals with an immoral woman of Samaria and she's down there. But John says, we beheld his glory and all flesh, the whole scale of flesh, from a blue-blooded Pharisee to an immoral woman of Samaria, brothers and sisters, was the totality of the scale of flesh. And they're going to see the glory of Yahweh and they're going to go like that. And that's why those stories are together in that record. You know, when you put the two together, what a marvellous contrast they make and how this will bring these people together. You see, as I say, Isaiah had said, all flesh shall see it together. Here we have a ruler of the Jews. Here we have a woman of Samaria. This man came to Jesus by night. This woman met him in the blaze of noon. To this man God said, or Jesus said, God so loved the world. But to the woman he said, salvation is of the Jews. You reverse that. What if he have said to Nicodemus, salvation is of the Jews? Nicodemus would have gone over and said, truth, Lord, truth. And he'd have gone way up in the sky. And what if he have gone to that woman and said, God loves the world. She'd have had ten husbands. But he didn't say that, brothers and sisters. He told him that God loved the world and he told her that salvation is of the Jews. What he did, he broadened the outlook of Nicodemus and narrowed the viewpoint of the woman of Samaria because they all had to see the glory of Yahweh and unite. And there's no way that they're going to unite unless one has got a far broader aspect of God's purpose and the other one's got a far narrower concept of morality. There's no way they're going to unite without that. And you've only got to put those, put those things opposite and you'll see the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making. 
And so you see, there's a remarkable connection then in the story of the woman of Samaria with that of Nicodemus. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. All flesh will see it and unite. The glory was revealed, says John. We saw it. There's your old flesh, and there they are at one. And it is my belief, brethren and sisters, that the next time we see Nicodemus, we've seen them only in the record, we've never seen them literally, but by the eye of faith we've seen them here, the next time we see those two people literally, I'll be very surprised if we don't see them together. And I believe that's the whole point of that story, being told like that, between those two stories being put together. I believe that we stand there with our Lord Jesus Christ, we'll see those people together. And there'll be a cause of wonder among all those disciples of that age. A marvel and a wonder that the glory of Yahweh was such of such magnitude that it could bring those two people together. And they won't marvel, brothers and sisters, that Nicodemus now tolerates the woman. Or that the woman now respects Nicodemus. They will marvel that the glory of Yahweh was so brilliant to bring those two together. That's what John said. That he might gather together in one all the children of God that are scattered abroad. That's one of the themes of his, his gospel message. Now, in order that we might appreciate just how far those two people were apart, we want to consider this evening the first six verses of John chapter 4. And in particular, we want to consider now the background or the origin of the Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? Now many of you, I should say the great majority of you would know that. But I want to go over it nonetheless. Because I want you to understand, I want us all to appreciate and enter into the feelings of absolute hatred and bitterness that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I want you to appreciate the reasons why, because they all come out in this story. And if you, you think that I'm going to labour this, Wait till, we finish, wait till we get into the middle of that story. You'll see how that the Lord Jesus Christ makes point after point after point about that woman's background, which if we didn't understand, we would never appreciate. Now, the history of the Samaritans is really in the Bible, isn't it? It's in the second of Kings, chapter 17. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll explain the background, which I should say is very simple, really. We learned it in our Sunday school lesson, but let's go over it. In the second of Kings 17, we have the story of how the northern ten tribes of Israel were carried away into captivity by the Assyrian power. Now you will remember that the ten tribes were carried away over a hundred odd years before Judah was carried away in the southern kingdom. 120, 130 years later, Judah got taken into captivity by Babylon. But first of all, the second of Kings 17 deals with the history of the ten tribes in the north. And they were carried into captivity by the Assyrian power. And it was the policy of the Assyrians, brethren and sisters, to depopulate captive, captive areas, to depopulate them, to, to take the whole of the, the native population away and re, replace them by another people who had no national affinity with that land. It wasn't a bad policy, really. Cruel, ruthless policy. But it was not a bad policy when it came to the politics of the day because it meant that when those people were put into a land that they didn't belong to, they lost all national aspirations and they were easily controlled. And so Shalmaneser got hold of the Jews and he just took them all out of Israel and he brought men from Babylon, from Elam, from Cutha and from all the mystic nations to the east which were all wrapped in the mysticism of astrology 
and all sorts of idolatries and the mysteries of religion and he brought them back and he put them in the land of Israel. But in the process of changing one population to another, because the land was denuded of its inhabitants, the wild beasts multiplied and were not being controlled. And by the time these superstitious people got back there, lions were ravaging the land. And many people lost their lives and they got terribly superstitious about that. They said, it's the God of the land. It's the God of the land. This is what Second Kings 17 is saying. And so they appealed to the Assyrians. They said, send us some of these Jews back to teach us the manner of the God of the land. So Shalmaneser got some of the Jews and he sent them back to the land, Jewish priests. And they came back there and they dwelt among the people. And they taught them about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they mingled with them. And the result of that, brethren and sisters, is in verse 32 and 33 of the second of Kings 17. And this was what, what, what resulted. So they feared Yahweh and made unto themselves the lowest of them priests for the of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared Yahweh and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. And so they had a mixed religion. They feared Yahweh and they served their own gods. And there was, in the truest sense of the word, a blend of truth and apostasy such as never been in Israel. Now it's notable, brethren and sisters, that the record tells us that he only sent one priest back there. And it's a question of debate as to whether the Jews actually intermingled and became a mixed people. It's, I don't believe, it's, it's doubtful whether they were a mixed people of Jews and Gentiles. Because only one priest is mentioned as going back in that chapter. But whether they were a mixed people, they certainly had a mixed religion. And when the Lord Jesus Christ had that woman opposite him and he said, Woman, ye worship, ye know not what. That was not being sarcastic. Our Lord was above that. He wasn't belittling the woman. That was a statement, brethren and sisters, of absolute truth. Because that was the origin of the Samaritan religion. They had a hodgepodge of religion. And the Jews rightly hated it as we would. And that hatred, brethren and sisters, never ceased over the centuries of time. It never diminished. Rather, it grew more intense and more and more intense. That's why when the disciples came back and saw the Lord talking to that woman, they were absolutely astonished. You know why? For two reasons. One, because she was Samaritan. And the other is that even if she was a Jewess, the rabbi said, it's better to burn the law than to talk about it in public to a woman, even to your own wife. They were wrong about that, of course. We don't practice that here at Enfield, I hope not. But that was the Jewish, that was the rabbi's teaching. So when they came back and saw him talking to a woman and talking about the Bible, which of course is all he did talk about, and when they knew that she was a Samaritan, they couldn't believe their eyes. And you can understand, brothers and sisters, the marvellous truth that John is setting forth in that fourth chapter. He couldn't have selected a better person to teach that God is gathering together in one. All the children who are scattered abroad. Now that hostility, as I say, never waned. It lived on over the years. It never changed. And as the Samaritan area, just north of Judea, of course, became more and more populated by all these people that are mentioned in verse 30 there, Men of Babylon, of Succoth, Benoth, of Cuth, of Nurgle, men of Hamath, of Ashima, and the next verse, all the nations that they come from, 
all the mysticism of the East mixed up with the truth of the God of Israel just north of Judea. They were almost breathing down the Jews' necks and you could almost cut the air with a knife between those two borders. And for centuries it was the same. It was carried on through Ezra. You remember when they came back from captivity after the Babylonian captivity that is when Nebuchadnezzar carried away the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and took them away they 70 years they were in captivity and of course we know that after the 70 years prophecy of Daniel they came back to the land under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel and in the book of Ezra it's recorded they ran into this people down there again and they would have not ever barred them so that Nehemiah withstood them and he said you've got no right you've got no portion no memorial in Jerusalem you've got nothing to do with it but they thought they did and their attitude was brethren and sisters that they were related to the hope of Israel despite their other beliefs they couldn't see there was any, any point about that their attitude was very liberal they thought well what does it really matter we believe what you believe we believe what the Babylonians believe what does it really matter we'll join with you you happen to be our next door neighbours we've got some affinity with you and Nehemiah rightly said you've got no such affinity at all no portion no right no memorial in Jerusalem and so the hostility was still there until we come to the 13th chapter of Nehemiah and we find that what happened here was that Nehemiah chased one of them out of the temple of God or one who was related to them I should say and in the 13th chapter of Nehemiah we read in verse 28 Nehemiah 13 and verse 28 and one of the sons of Joida the son of Eliashib the high priest was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite therefore I chased him from me you know brethren and sisters and young people that happens to be, that verse of scripture happens to be the last scene of the Old Testament scripture. Well, we know that Malachi was the last prophet, but he was contemporary with Nehemiah. The last thing ever seen before the Old Testament closed was Nehemiah racing through the temple, chasing Manasseh, as his name was, not recorded there, but chasing Manasseh, the grandson of the Jewish high priest, because he went and married the daughter of Sambala and brought a Samaritan relationship into the holy place of God's temple. And the Old Testament closes with Nehemiah hot upon his heels and saying, Get out of here! Such was the hostility, brethren and sisters, between those two people. And rightly so. Because there were good reasons for Nehemiah for doing what he did. Now the Bible closes on that scene. But history, history didn't. What happened was this. Manasseh tried to come back. But the people, because they had, were now rebuked and disciplined by Nehemiah, wouldn't have him. And Sanballat desperately wanted him back there. And he tried to get him to get back to his people. He said, you go back and get back in there. But he couldn't get back in. So he went back to his father-in-law, Sanballat, and said, they won't have me. Right, he said. Right, that's all I wanted to know. So what did Sanballat do? History tells us. He went and built a temple on Mount Gerizim and said, right, that's the true temple and that's the wrong temple down there. And so they established on the top of Mount Gerizim, which is opposite evil, of course, and Shechem in between, and this is where Jesus met that woman. He established on the top of Mount Gerizim a rival temple. And the woman said, our fathers said, in this mountain we should worship God. That's what she was referring to. And so there were those two rival temples up there. You know what they did, brethren and sisters? 
they taught, the Samaritans did, that Abraham sacrificed Isaac on Mount Gerizim. And they said that after the sacrifice of Isaac, there he met the king Melchizedek, which was absolutely diametrically opposed to what Genesis 14 had said and Genesis 22. But Genesis 14 said that Abraham met Melchizedek down near the city of Jerusalem in the valley of Shava. And that Isaac was sacrificed down there too. And Judah knew that, but here the Samaritan was saying, that's wrong. No, Abraham was up here when he sacrificed Isaac, and here he met Melchizedek. But they would point to the first five books of Moses. The Samaritan says, we believe in the first five books of Moses. And the Jews would say, well, you're wrong, because chapter and verse for that belief. You know what they did? They wrote their own books. And they got hold of the first five books of Moses, and they altered it to suit their beliefs. Wouldn't that go down well with the Jews? And there was what was known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. The word Pentateuch is a Greek word meaning five volumes, which is reference to the first five books of Moses. The Samaritans only accepted that, and that they had to alter. Because nowhere does it say that Abraham sacrificed Isaac there, nor does it say he met Melchizedek there, nor does it say he met him at that time. They had to make blatant changes to that book, and they did it. Barefacedly they did it. And they believed in a lie, brethren and sisters, an absolute lie. And you'll see that coming out in the words of the Lord of the woman. She was a believer in a blatant lie. And that had to be corrected before she could ever make her way back as far as God was concerned. And you might say to yourself, how on earth would they ever get that to be accepted if that was so plain? Well, you see, brethren and sisters, in the book of the first five books of Moses, Jerusalem doesn't get a mention. It's not mentioned at all. All that the books of Moses said was, in the place which I choose to put my name there. It doesn't say it's Jerusalem. All right, the other matter about Abraham and Melchizedek was plain enough, but they altered that. But they argued backwards and forwards. And the burning question of the day was, which place? And the woman, knowing that this man was a prophet, as soon as she came to that conclusion, she, she broached the burning question of the day. Our fathers say, in this mountain we ought to worship, and ye say, that in Jerusalem men ought to worship. That was the greatest question between the Jews and the Samaritans, and nobody had holy writ for that. Because all the Bible said, Deuteronomy 12, in the place which I shall choose, out of one of your tribes, and it really left that question unanswered in the first five books. In the Samaritan Pentateuch, brethren and sisters, they actually wrote into that section in Shechem. They turned around and, and they changed that to Shechem and said, in the place of Shechem. Such was the blatant way which these people went about changing the Bible to suit their own ideas and philosophies. Can you understand the simmering hatred that went across that border? between those two people, if you can't appreciate it, brethren and sisters, try and imagine someone coming in here and getting hold of your Bible and writing in there that man has an immortal soul and then standing up here and saying, well, look, we believe what the Christadelphians believe, that there's a resurrection of the dead, but we can incorporate the immortal soul in that because the soul deals with the soul, the resurrection deals with the body, and we can marry the two of them. You would never bar it, neither would I. And for a fellow to come in here and all of the Bible in such a blatant fashion, he'd never be accepted and it would create hostility second to none. Well, that's what had happened. You imagine, therefore, 
when these disciples saw him talking to that woman, brethren and sisters. But that's not all they did. You know, it all depended upon the fortunes of the Jews. If the Jews were in trouble, for example, and being invaded by a foreign invader, the Samaritans would say, we've got nothing to do with those people, we're, we're different people of a different race. But if all went well with the Jews, and if they wanted to press their claims, they claimed to have descent from Joseph. Joseph. He's in that record, see? If you didn't know this, you might not pick this point up. They claim to be descendants from Joseph. Further than that, brothers and sisters, they claim to be descendants through Ephraim and Manasseh. They claim to be direct descendants in that line of Ephraim and Manasseh. That was their claim. If things were going well with the Jews. If they weren't, they would have nothing to do with them. And of course, there's been raging opinion as to whether there, there was any, some measure of Jewish blood in them as to whether the Jews did intermingle with them. And some say they did and some say they didn't. Some say that there were up there those who had partial Jewish descent. But Jesus said this, brothers and sisters, in the 17th chapter of Luke. This is what he said about the Samaritans as far as their origins were concerned. And in the 17th chapter of Luke, he has this to say about their, their genealogies or their origins. We read in the 17th chapter of Luke and at verse 16 concerning the men that came to be healed. One of them came back and in verse 16 he fell down on his face at his feet giving him thanks and he was a Samaritan. And in verse 18 Jesus said there are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. And the Greek word brethren and sisters is not of any there's nothing ambiguous about the Greek word. The Greek word literally means a man of another race. Jesus did not recognise their claim to have any Jewish descent at all. It's a hyphenated word in the Greek. It means another race. A man of another race. He would never have accepted their claim, brothers and sisters, to be the literal descendants of Joseph. But you're going to see tonight that they were or could be the descendants of Joseph in a far, far greater way than mere fleshly descent. A remarkable way. And when I get to the end of this talk tonight, you'll understand why we spend some time on the background and why we don't want to go past verse 6. But I want this to stick in your minds because that story's marvellous. That's how this woman was brought into the orbit of the truth. And so in John chapter 4, well, no, let's not worry, but keep it loose for a while. But in John 4, it says, the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. The woman said that to Jesus. How is it that thou, being a Jew, speakest unto me, which, uh, which am a Samaritan? For the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. There are no definite articles in the Greeks. What she said was, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They just don't have any dealings. Fourth weird. And in the ninth chapter of Luke, brothers and sisters, we have a story which tells, tells us that the hostility was mutual. It wasn't as if the Jews just hated the Samaritans. Oh no, the hatred was absolutely mutual. And if ever you want to see that, look at this ninth chapter of Luke. We read in verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. 
and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Look at the hostility there. So messengers come into Samaria and bear in mind that our Lord has been kind to this people. And they say, where's he going? Oh, well, he's going to Jerusalem. They spit on the ground and say, keep out of here. The very fact he's going to Jerusalem, no way he's going to pass through our land. And what about the disciples' reaction to that, brethren and sisters? Did they have kindly thoughts towards their next door neighbour? Well, in verse 54, and when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? The lovely mutual feelings, brethren and sisters. Where are you going? I'm going to Jerusalem. Not passing through here. Listen, just let's go and bring down fire from heaven. Now that's the scene, brethren and sisters, for the setting of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when his disciples came back, they see him sitting on a well, talking to a woman of Samaria. And you would have to be able to cut the air with a knife when those disciples came back. And they were almost speechless in unbelief at that sight. Now with that background, let's have a look at Luke, John chapter 4. And our study this evening will take us up, as I said, to verse 6. So John 4 opens up with these words. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, verse 3 says, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. So the signal for the Lord to leave Judea was news coming, brethren and sisters. What news? That the Pharisees had heard how that Jesus had baptised more disciples than John. Where did they hear that? And when we understand where they heard it, and it's not difficult to establish, we'll know why the Lord immediately left Judea. Come back to chapter 3, brethren and sisters. We read from verse 23 of chapter 3 or verse 22 of chapter 3, And after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptised. And John also was baptising in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptised. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Master, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And the Pharisees are standing off, brethren and sisters, with a big smirk on their face, listening to all this, and they're having the time of their lives. Because there's John's disciples, and there's some of the Jews who had come down from the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're at loggerheads. They couldn't have had it better, could they? And when Jesus knew that they'd seen that division, he got out of Judea. He was never, brothers and sisters, going to act in a manner that was going to drive a wedge between John's disciples and his own. And there is the, is the attitude of a very wise man. And that's what I was saying earlier in my current affairs talk. Jesus immediately saw the danger of that. He as the Son of God, brethren and sisters, had prerogative which overruled them all. But he didn't go on to press his claims to give that crowd a chance to drive a wedge between those two groups of disciples because he loved them all. And he knew that many more of John's disciples would yet become his. And those that he had at that stage were only of John's disciples. 
Therefore, John's disciples were a good group of men and women who had come out and were justified God in their baptism and declared that all flesh is grass. And even though they did not believe in him, there's no way that he's going to give those Pharisees the opportunity to drive that wedge. And I believe that's the reason that he left. Because he could see the danger of that. And as I said, if he wanted to overrule them all with his prerogatives as the Son of God, he could have. Just the same as somebody in this ecclesia might think that they've got to cut above someone else and they've got a right to do things when they can drive a wedge between good people. You don't do that. And our Lord is the outstanding example. When he heard that, he got out. But you know, they didn't report him correctly. All they said that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John. And in chapter, in verse 2, in parenthesis, John corrects that exaggerated and misleading report. It was a misleading report, for he says, Jesus himself baptised not, but his disciples. The fact that chapter 3 says that Jesus baptised, brethren and sisters, doesn't mean that he did it himself. There's proof of it is in that verse. His disciples would have baptised others on his behalf, but he would not have baptised himself. And there were two reasons for that. There may have been others, but I could be sure of two. The first of those reasons, brethren and sisters, is in the first Corinthians. This is one reason why Jesus would have deferred from baptising anyone. But in first Corinthians chapter 1, Verses 14 and 15. The Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 and 15, I thank God that I baptised none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptised in my own name. Can you imagine, brethren and sisters, that if the Lord had actually administered baptism to anyone, even one person or two people perhaps, if he had done that for even one or two people, can you imagine the temptation for those people that when our Lord was glorified to go around the ecclesias and say, I, I was baptised by Jesus himself. Can you believe it? The very purpose of baptism, brethren and sisters, was to do that, not that. The whole purpose of it was to teach that all flesh is grass. Some are not trees. They're all grass. That's the first reason, I believe, that Jesus wouldn't have baptised anyone. And the second one is even more powerful. You've only got to ask yourself this question, brothers and sisters. Could the Lord ever baptise anyone into symbolism? Because that's all baptism is. There are no magical effects in baptism. The, the apostle says in Romans 6 that we die the death of Christ in the water and we are risen to newness of life. But in a literal fact, there's not one bit of difference between ourselves in that water and out of that water as far as our flesh is concerned. Not one bit. But as a result of our Lord's death and resurrection, brethren and sisters, when we are baptised in the Spirit, there will be a change. Can you ever imagine the Lord baptising anyone into symbolism? No wonder he stood back and merely supervised what was done. And there are two powerful reasons, I believe, why our Lord would have stood back and had nothing to do with it. And that's why John said, 
even though it may have been said that it was baptized of Jesus because it was done in his name, he did not do it. That is a misleading report. And consequently, our Lord was not there, brothers and sisters, to drive a wedge between John's disciples and his own, nor was he there baptizing people to show that him and John were on an equality because they weren't. So he couldn't teach that they were on equality. He couldn't smooth, smooth over the breach of disunity which was being driven by the Pharisees by saying, hey, John and I are on an equal basis because they were not. But nor would he stay there and persist in that action which could be taken so wrongfully and create such harm amongst those disciples. That, brothers and sisters, is the understanding and the actions of a remarkable man. And he is our example. And we ought to bear that in mind when we read that, that record. So what did he do? Well, he left Judea, says John, if we go back to the fourth chapter of John, but he more than left them. He more than left them, brethren and sisters. John chooses a very powerful Greek word to tell us what he did. Verse 3 says, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. In the Greek, the Greek has it says he let it go. He let Judea go. You know, brothers and sisters, the worst thing that could ever happen to you and I is for God or his son to let us go. When God's got hold of you, though we may have trials and tribulations, just so long as he got hold of us, he may squeeze us very powerfully to direct us, to discipline us, brethren and sisters. We can bear that and we must bear that. But if he lets us go, then we're in real trouble. We're in dire straits if he does that. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And when he heard those Pharisees and the, and the intent that they had, he dropped Judea. And he went into Galilee. And to go to Galilee, he went through Samaria. And in Samaria, brethren and sisters, they rushed out to welcome him. And dozens of people believed on him and he never did a single miracle. And some of them believed indirectly through a woman who'd never spoken to them. Couldn't get that in Judea. He never got that sort of response down there unless he brought down fire from heaven, unless he healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, strength to the lame. They wouldn't believe a thing. But up in Samaria, brothers and sisters, they even believed him indirectly. He let go of Judea and he took hold of Samaria and Galilee. That's what the record says. And John says he must needs go through Samaria. Why must he needs go through Samaria? The Greek means of a necessity to be forced by circumstances. Again, a strong word. So what the record is saying is this, that John's telling us, using the literal Greek, he dropped Judea and of absolute necessity had to go into Samaria. That's how John is explaining it, brethren and sisters. He doesn't tell us what made that necessary. It could be, and I think it possibly is, that he was in a hurry to get into Galilee. Because, you see, the Jews didn't travel that way. They did, if they were on their own. Some Jews went up through Samaria. If they were going into Galilee, they would go through Samaria if they were on their own. But if they were in company with other Jews, no way. Oh, no, that was too much for their dignity. They'd go from Jerusalem, they'd turn right, up over the brow of Olivet, and they'd go down through Jericho, right across the Jordan, and then up the other side was Samaria way over there to their left, with a Jordan Valley between them, a mountain range on top of another one 
a barrier there so the smell didn't waft over the, the valley. Way over there, they'd walk up with their nose in the air and Samaria would be on their left and they'd go right up to Galilee, miles out of their way. They'd have to go down two and a half thousand feet of the valley floor, up the other side another two and a half thousand to get to the top of Gilead and then walk along the top of those hills and come down up the top again across the valley and up over the hills of Galilee to get into, into Galilee. But do all that rather than go through Samaria. But he must needs go through there. Because God's providence, brethren and sisters, would have it to let go Judea and grab Samaria. Now what about Samaria? Samaria really was a city, wasn't it? But it gave its name to the whole district. Actually, the region of Samaria was mainly taken up with the great tribe of Ephraim. There was Judah, which had Jerusalem, of course, and all the environs of Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem. And then a line went through Jerusalem itself, just to the bottom of Jerusalem, and just north of them was Benjamin, which, which was perched between the great tribes of Ephraim and Judah. And there is little Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33 that God said he put between his shoulders, as he did. He put Judah there and the big Ephraim tribe there and little Benjamin was perched between their shoulders. That's how it was. And then north of Benjamin, of course, the great tribe of Ephraim taking over the major portion of Samaria. And oftentimes the northern kingdom was called Ephraim or Samaria because that became its capital. It didn't start that way. First capital of the northern kingdom was Terzah. But Omri, when he came to the throne, who was of course the father of Ahab, moved the capital to Samaria. And the whole district took its name from the city of Samaria and it became known as the city or the place of the district of Samaria. And again, without turning this up, in the second of Kings, chapter 17, the history of the Samaritans, we re read there that the Samaritans really became known as the Samaritans because they dwelt in that district called Samaria. And so there Jesus came to that place, into that district. But he didn't come into Samaria. We read in verse 5 that he came into a, into a place which is called Sychar. And again, you know, there are some people who think that's Shechem because that's where Jesus was, around about where Shechem was. And Shechem, of course, was another one of those great cities of the Samaritan region, of Samaria. But it isn't Shechem, brethren and sisters. It's Sychar. It's different. It's a little place, but a couple of miles from the site of Shechem, just a little down south and to the east of the two great mountains, Ebal and Gerizim, and Jesus came to there. Why would he come to Sychar? Well, Sychar is a Hebrew word. It's not a Greek word. It's a little Hebrew town known in the Old Testament. You know what it means? It means a drunkard. It has a connotation of being drunk, and because... The word means to weave and to stagger as a drunken man. It means to be a liar. And he sat there, brethren and sisters, at a little place that woman came to because she was a liar. Because she belonged to people who told deliberate lies. And they were drunk with their superstitions. You know something? That whole district had a reputation for drunkenness. You have a look at Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 28, that whole district had a reputation for this drunkenness of which psycho is the meaning. We read in Isaiah 28, <clears throat> verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride of the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. 
And so the district of Samaria, or Ephraim as it's there called, was a district which was noted for its drunkenness. Right from back from the days of Ahab, brethren and sisters, who built on the hill of Samaria, 12 miles northwest of Shechem, 12 miles northwest from where our Lord was sitting on a diagonal track up northwest, there was the city of Samaria, and there Ahab built his ivory palace. And when you go up to Samaria, you wind between the hills of, of Samaria, which are wider apart and more separate than the hills of Judea, and divided by lovely green valleys. So that a valley sort of just swoops across to the next hill there and swoops across to that one, undulating towards each mountain. Each mountain seems to be separate. And when you come to Samaria, there's a magnificent valley. It's a beautiful valley that just curves away from you and then rolls up the hill of Samaria. And there is the palace of Ahab, if you can picture it in your mind, the ivory castle of Ahab sitting on the top of that hill. And with its turrets, of course, its fortress turrets, it looked forever like a jewel and a crown sitting upon the top of that hill at the head of the fat valley or the fertile valley. And as the eye ran down over that valley, wonderfully fertile, there sparkling in the sun was the ivory palace of Ahab the drunkards of Ephraim and the crown of pride. And that's what the district was known for. And there was the Samaritan temple, 12 miles back, southeast now, coming back from Samaria, down through the winding track to Shechem. And there was their temple of Gerizim, on top of Gerizim there, sparkling as they thought it would forever go on forever up there. And there they had a reputation for drunkenness, just like the Israelites whom they replaced. And the point the Lord's going to make in this story is this. There's no difference between them and the Jews at all, despite their hostilities. And unless they all come to worship God in spirit and in truth, there's no difference. If Ephraim were drunkards, so were the people who inhabit the land now. And sitting there at a little place called Sychar, a drunkard, the Lord's mind would wander back over the prophecy of Isaiah, of which we cannot now speak particularly, but we'll be back there, brethren and sisters, when he gets to Nazareth, because we're going to go back to the 29th chapter of Isaiah, which follows on chronologically in that prophecy as the story in John does. Quite remarkable. We'll be back there, and then we'll make that connection. But for the moment, see him sitting there at Sychar, a little the place called the Drunkard, and thinking about that district, stupefied as they were, with all their superstitions and mixed-up religion. And wondering, of course, wondering a great wonder that God's people down south that he just let go were just as bad, if not worse, and yet they'd have nothing to do with that people. Too hoity-toity to pass even through the district, but they were no better, even worse than the people that he'd come to. Think of our Lord's expansive mind. Think of the grandeur of that man. Think of his affinity with his heavenly Father. And think what he thinks, brethren and sisters, about men's opinions of men. You just think what he thinks about that. And sitting there, you enter into his mind. What did he believe? What did he think about the Jews' opinion of that people or that opinion of Jews when they were all in desperate need? For all were drunk with the wine and the stupefaction, the flesh and all that it stood for. The Lord is there to bring them all to come to see the need for the great salvation that he could offer them. Such was the place. And then John adds this magnificent touch near to a parcel of ground which Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Well, there he is, sitting there, between Ebal and Gerizim. And he, in Genesis 33, brethren and sisters, we have the record of Jacob. This is the spot 
But you'll appreciate all this when the story gets put together. There's so much wrapped up in the background of this story. We read in Genesis 33 and verse 18. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paden Aram, and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it Isle Eloah Israel. The margin, brethren and sisters, may not be accurate to the detail, but in the English it would read what the margin says, God the God of Israel. And sitting there at Jacob's well, he said to the woman, salvation is of the Jews. God, the God of Israel. He's absolutely right. That water that she was pulling out of that well was telling her, God is the God of Israel. And Jacob had dug that well, and she knew it. Jacob had given them that well. He'd left it to his posterity and to all people who wanted to come and help themselves. He was magnanimous, was Jacob. And out of the goodness of his heart, he gave them the world. Well, here's the gift of God, says Jesus. And if you want to know where the truth is, well, it's the God is the God of Israel. Salvation's of the Jews. The well said that. And he bought that parcel of ground to put that well there, brethren and sisters. He did that. But you see, he bequeathed that later on to Joseph. Genesis 48 and verse 22. Moreover, he said, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. And he gave him that one portion extra. And when the tribes of Israel were, were, were uh, spread through the land by the instigation of Joshua and the command of Yahweh, brethren and sisters, the big tribe of Ephraim got the center. Manasseh was split in two. He got part of Galilee and he was part over in the land of Gilead. And there was one little spot that God reserved in memory of Joseph. And when Jesus sat there and John recorded, it says he came to a parcel of ground. The Greek means one little spot. That's what the Greek literally means. One tiny spot he left in memory of Joseph. And we're going to see, brethren and sisters, why that was. He left that one little tiny spot. Over in Joshua 24... They buried Joseph there, brethren and sisters. They buried him there. And they brought his bones out of Egypt. According to his faith, by faith Joseph gave commandment concerning his bones. And in, Je in Joshua 24 and verse 32, And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem in a parcel of ground, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, and so on. So they buried him there in a little tiny spot, and there he was. And it's quite remarkable, brethren and sisters, that here is the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting at that very spot, there are the bones of Joseph, the one little spot in the earth, dedicated him to his memory, and he was put there by Joshua, and both of them lived for 110 years of age, exactly the same amount of time, and one buried the other. And they didn't both live together, of course, different epoch, but they both lived for 110 and Joshua put him there in that one little spot. And Joshua told Israel, they've got to serve Yahweh in sincerity and in truth. And that's what Jesus said to that woman. And Joshua said to the children of Israel, you're going into a land that is not yours. 
I'm going to give you fields which you never sowed. You will reap the ground which you've never laboured. And Jesus, looking over the disciples' head and seeing all the Samaritans running out of the city, said, the fields are ready to harvest and you've not put any labour into that. He was reliving those incidents in his mind, brethren and sisters. They were all streaming into that grand mind. You let me tell you some of the things he was thinking. And you'll see them unfold in this story. Look where he was, again, between Ebal and Gerizim, the two mountains. And what did they stand for, brethren and sisters? They stood for decisions. Decisions. You've got to make a decision. Those two mountains, you make a decision, a blessing or a curse. That woman had to make a decision. There was a burning question. She had to make a decision. This is a very rough transparency. I did it late tonight, but forgive that. Shechem doesn't mean decisions. It means a burden bearer. But it's, it's so worded to mean that one's got to accept one's responsibility. You've got to bear your own burden. You've got to make a decision. In the 12th chapter of Genesis and verse 6, Abraham came out of Ur the Chaldees and he came into the, into the land of Shechem. And the first mention of the Bible of, in Shechem, it says this, the Canaanite was then in the land. He had a choice. So Abraham could dwell in that land. He could be a stranger in a country that was not him or he could be a Canaanite. The decision was his. We come to Genesis 35 when Jacob came back from Syria with his family and he knew that they got mixed up in idolatry in Syria. They thought he didn't know, but he did know. And when he got them to Shechem, he said, pull away the strange gods from among you. They had to make a decision to serve God or mammon. In Judges chapter 9, brothers and sisters, all Israel took a Bibelet, who was one of the sons of Gideon by his concubine. Didn't have a right to the line of the throne that they offered Gideon. Gideon didn't want to be king, but they wanted to make one of his sons king. So this chap had all his sons slain. And Israel took him to Shechem and made a decision to have him, instead of the the legitimate sons of Gideon, to be their king. And that decision, brothers and sisters, fell around their ears in a most shocking manner. Moses took the children of Israel there, we read, in the book of Deuteronomy. Or rather, Joshua did by the commandment of Moses. Moses commanded that they would go there and he put six tribes on Gerizim, six on Mount Ebal and the priests stood in the middle and they chanted the blessings and the curse and they could have whatever they wanted. They had to make a decision. What do you want? And when Joshua finally gave up his life, brothers and sisters, at the same age as Joseph, he brought Israel to the very spot where that man was buried and he says, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. It was still a question of making a decision, wasn't it? And up comes a woman and says, what we do? And the Lord, brethren and sisters, was to put before her the alternatives. And it wasn't just a question as to whether that mountain or that mountain was the place of true worship. The question, brothers and sisters, was whether true worship was in there or it wasn't. And that's the biggest decision in life. And the last incident that we know about evil and Gerizim is the one we're going to study. And when you realise that you've got all that and more, I've just made a selection. When you realise that the whole of the Old Testament as far as Shechem is concerned is a piling up of decisions, the greatest decision you and I have got to make is to whether we're going to serve God in there or not. That's the biggest decision in life. And that's what the woman, brothers and sisters, that's the decision that she had to make. But what about, what about this spot of Joseph's? Why would John bother to tell us near to the little spot of ground 
that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And I want to finish this study this evening, brothers and sisters, by telling you why that is. And when we've finished all this, and you go home and think about it all, because you're going to have another number of weeks, I believe, before we're back again, because Golden Grove's going to interfere. But if we, I don't mean that that way, but when we come back next time, you'll remember all this background, because we're going to relate that to that story. Now, why would he bring him to the spot where Joseph was buried? What's Joseph got to do with this? Very much indeed. First of all, because that woman, when it suited her, claimed to be a descendant of Joseph. Jesus knew that was not true. But he also knew this, brothers and sisters, which I found out some years ago now, which was a big thrill to me. He also knew this, that if she ever came into the truth, which she did, she would be especially the seed of Joseph, above any other of the sons of Israel. Above any other, it would be Joseph. Why? Well, you see, it all goes like this. You just follow this with me. It's absolutely scintillating, this is. Near to a spot of ground that Jacob goes to Joseph. And up comes this woman from Mary. This is Psalm 80. You follow this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Incredible, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Here's the shepherd of Israel. But he's not leading all the tribes. He's leading what the psalm likes to call Joseph like a flock. And he mentions three of the tribes, Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh happened to be the two sons of Joseph. And Benjamin, brethren and sisters, is his only full-blooded brother. So in these three tribes, we have the flock of Joseph. But more than that, if the shepherd of Israel is leading the flock of Joseph, and there they are in those three tribes, we know this, that if he's going forth between the cherubim, and I'll put that back here again, note that, Thou that dwellest between the cherubim, if he's between the cherubim and he's a shepherd, his flock would be behind him. Well, the shepherd would be going east. And behind him was Benjamin, Manasseh and Ephraim. There is the flock of Joseph. If the shepherd goes before his flock, as he did, there they are following him. But you will know the difference. A keen Bible reader would have noted a difference because the psalmist said from before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh. That's not how they're put there. And what the psalmist did, he brought Benjamin to the centre. Why? Because Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And in Psalm 80 verse 17 it says, let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand. So the psalmist moves him to the centre. So whoever is the flock of Joseph, we know that Benjamin is the son of God's right hand. And if God, as he is, the shepherd of Israel, there's only one, one person who ever went right behind God, and that was Jesus Christ, the son of his right hand. But either side of him were two tribes who belonged to Joseph. Now what was special about them in the record, brothers and sisters? 
You read with me Genesis 48. And you'll begin to see why it was that Jesus spoke to that woman on that spot. That little spot on earth. Genesis 48. Jacob is about to pass into the article of death. He's seen Joseph again. And he brings the two boys of Joseph before him. And in verse 5 of Genesis 48 he says, And now thy two sons... Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came into Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. And thy issue, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren and their inheritance. In other words, Joseph, you can have whatever family comes from this point on. Those two boys are mine. And says Jacob, they were born to you in Egypt before I ever came there. So here were two boys born in Egypt that never knew a thing about Israel and that were adopted into the family of Israel, brethren and sisters. Who is the flock of Joseph? They are people born in Egypt who when they were born and reared never knew Israel at all. They would have heard from Joseph, of course, but as in reality, never knew him. But in the end, they were adopted. And Joseph's name means the increaser. And Jesus sat thus in Jacob's well, near to the little spot on the earth that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and up come a woman of Samaria. Imagine what that mind was thinking, sitting there, brothers and sisters. Was that flooding into his mind? He would look at that woman and he would know straight away there was about to be an adoption. There was about to be an adoption. Literally, Joseph, brethren and sisters, the literal Joseph, who sat, who was there with Jacob, had another issue. They were his own. But the one sitting on Jacob's will was Benjamin, the son of God's right hand. And his issue... His seed, brethren and sisters, was not like the literal Joseph who had it to himself. He was the son of God's right hand. And if, if those two boys were adopted into God's family, he was God's son. And sitting there, between, as it were, those two tribes, he waited for that woman to come to him, and she was going to be adopted. Now, if you think that is not right, and I know you don't, just have a look at this. In the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, brethren and sisters, this will begin to hope you'll understand the import of what's going on in the fourth chapter of John when this woman came up to be adopted. We read about Anna Joseph in the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. You might know this man by the name of Joseph, but you, you know him well by the name of Barnabas. But we, we was, that wasn't his proper name. In the last two verses of Acts chapter 4, verse 36, and Joseph, or Joseph as it is in the Hebrew, that's the Greek press of Joseph, and Joseph, who was by the apostles named Barnabas, the apostles called him that, which being interpreted the son of consolation or exhortation, a Levite out of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Look at him, brethren and sisters. Here's Joseph, but this Joseph is a Levite. His inheritance is Yahweh's. He doesn't own any land under the law of Moses. Yahweh was his portion. But this Levite didn't even live in the land. He lived way out on the island of Cyprus. 
away from the land. Who, when he came to the land of Israel, he owned land. He sold it and gave it away. Because he knew the spirit of the Levites. They were to have an inheritance. Yahweh was their inheritance. He believed that. He was called Joseph. What did they use him for in the, in the Ecclesia, brethren and sisters? Joseph means the increaser. The increaser of the family of God by adoption. Acts 11. Just listen to this. The family of Joseph is spreading out. The flock of Joseph is coming from everywhere. The children of God are being gathered together that are scattered abroad, as John puts it. Gentiles are coming into the truth at Antioch. We read in verse 22 of Acts 11, Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the ecclesia which was in Jerusalem. You know, brethren and sisters, let's pause there. That wouldn't have been welcome news. That would have been fear and trepidation. Message came down from Antioch in Syria. Hey, Gentiles are pouring into the truth. Oh, trouble. Look, we've got to be careful. Let's be careful. Let's hold them at bay. Let's, let's hold it up. Let's not be too quick about this. They'd be worried about that, brethren and sisters. But they said in that verse, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and saw the grace of God was glad. There would have been some Jews, brethren and sisters, that were sad. But he was glad and he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and much people was added. Added under the Lord. He increased the family of God by adoption from the Gentiles. People who were born in spiritual Egypt and had never known Israel but became adopted. That's what Joseph stood for, brethren and sisters. And there he is, sitting on the well, in the place of the drunkards, between Evil and Gerizim, in a little spot on the earth that God gave to his son Joseph, and up comes the woman of Samaria. Now that's the background of the story. Just think about it. In the next few weeks, keep on thinking about it. Just keep thinking about it. Jesus letting go of Judea, dropping it grasping opportunities in, of a necessity having to go to Samaria. Whatever that necessity was, there it was, forcing him through Samaria. He comes to this spot on the earth. Sits between two, those two great mountains, the blessing and the curse. Have a choice, whatever, which one do you want? Sitting on that well, which says, God is the God of Israel, salvation to the Jews. Knowing that the well, brethren and sisters, was a gift given not only to Jacob's family, but to ever, whoever wanted to participate in the water, could have it. Knowing this too, that he lived in a land of drunks who needed desperately to get back to a bit of aqua pura. And sitting there, right over the littlest spot on the earth, a tiny little spot that was reserved for the memory of the man who increased the family of God by adoption, and with all that history, with all that geography, up comes a woman of Samaria. And a conversation ensued, brethren and sisters, which swirled around all that circumstances. And by magnificent illusions, drawing out the implication of words, and leading that simple woman's mind on and on and on, Jesus turned her, brethren and sisters, into a loose, immoral woman he turned her from that into a woman who worshipped Yahweh 
in sincerity and in truth. <laughs>